Hello, and welcome to NER Out Loud. My name is Becca Amon. I'm a junior at Middlebury College, and I had the pleasure of interning this summer for New England Review. In this episode, you will hear Jessie Lee Kerchival reading her essay, Crash, which was featured in NER Volume 42, Number 2, the Summer 2021 issue. The piece revolves around the author's memory of witnessing a horrific and distressing car accident. But throughout the essay, the author interrogates that memory in an effort to determine its accuracy. The reading will be followed by a conversation with the author, in which Jessie Lee and I talk about this essay and more, including her time translating the work of Uruguayan women poets and the generative power of memory in essay writing. Jessie Lee Kerchival is an author, memoirist, and translator, with a particular focus in Uruguayan poetry. She was born in Fontainebleau, France, and raised in Cocoa, Florida, where many would gather to watch rocket launches during the space race of the Cold War. She studied history at Florida State University in Tallahassee before receiving her MFA in creative writing from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Her publications include Space, her memoir about growing up during the space race from University of Wisconsin Press, and her most recent collection of poetry, America, That Island Off the Coast of France, from Tupelo Press. She is also a professor of English at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Here is her reading of Crash. It is 1966, and I am sitting on a stool at the Burger King on Merritt Island, Florida, eating French fries. My view is Highway 520, and the cars speeding up it to a rare stoplight just beyond where I sit. My father, my sister, and I have been to Cocoa Beach to swim and are on our way home. I always beg to stop at the Burger King. I am always famished after swimming, and there is nowhere to eat on the beach. Also, we are not a fast food family, so this is a treat, something my mother, who never goes to the beach, does not know about. I love how, after being at the beach, the french fries taste doubly salty. Then a station wagon with a surfboard on top smacks into the rear end of a long, low convertible with its top down, which is stopped for the red light. There's a tremendous noise. I feel it in my body, metal on metal, and the surfboard goes flying off the top of the station wagon through the air. It decapitates the driver of the convertible, just like that. I remember this. I can close my eyes and feel that metal on metal in my body. Right now, I am living in an apartment in Montevideo, Uruguay, where a side street, Joaquin de Saltaren, crosses the busy Boulevard España. The nearest light is several blocks away, over a hill. There are terrible accidents at this intersection. I hear them, brakes squealing, glass breaking, that awful remembered metal on metal. Cars flip. Suitcases, purses, and all kinds of personal belongings are scattered across the pavement. Ambulances arrive. Even now, when there is hardly any traffic because of the coronavirus quarantine, there are accidents. This week, a car hit a guy on a Pedidos Shah delivery bike, and the rider went flying. I heard that. I saw that. 
And I remember the accident in front of the Burger King. What I can't remember is the head. In my memory, the head is just a round, empty circle, like a speech bubble in a cartoon. It rolls back along the surfboard and then off one side onto the road on the far side of the car and out of sight. But there is no blood, no hair, no face. Does this mean the accident did not happen? That my memory is a lie? How could I not remember a severed head? How could the head be missing? I can close my eyes and see the surfboard flying forward, gleaming, freshly waxed. I have a good memory of its size, its color. In 1966, it would have been a long board, heavy, with a wicked pointed nose. I look up photos, like this one, I think, or this, at least 10 feet long, weighing maybe 50 pounds. Enough for the impact to cut right through a neck and send a head rolling back along the surfboard. But I doubt myself. I have told this story over the years. It is not, as they say, a story to dine out on, but I have told it. I thought I had written about it in my memoir space, which covers this very part of my life, starting when I moved to Coco in 1966 when I was 10 and stretching through all those years spent growing up in the shadow of the space program of nights lit by rockets to the moon. In my apartment here in Ordway, I don't have a copy of space with me but I used Google search to look inside the book. I searched for car accident, nothing. I searched for surfboard. I searched for head and find several mentions, but none of them about ones no longer attached to a body. I searched Burger King, zip. I could have sworn it was in there, but I published the book in 1998, 22 years ago. And the problem with a memoir is it's never big enough to include everything that happened in your life. I know I thought about including it. I remember asking my sister if she remembered the accident. She said she did. She told me she'd gone to the bathroom to wash her hands before she ate. And when she came out, everyone was standing at the door and windows looking out. I asked her if she remembered anything more about it. My sister has always been squeamish about blood. She faints whenever she has blood drawn, even if she's lying down. So I didn't want to ask her leading questions about the head. She said she remembered our dad was furious because traffic was stopped for a long time and it took us hours to get home. I have no memory of that, but neither of us could remember where my father was when all this happened. He died in 1981, so there was no way to ask him. And my mother, whom he might have told about the accident, died in 1982. Maybe my father was sitting beside me and saw the accident too. Maybe he was in the restroom, like my sister, or ordering our food. Maybe he was pacing impatiently around. In my mind's eye, I see him, ridiculously enough, fiddling with his iPhone, a device that would not exist until the next century. But he had the kind of absent-minded inattention that goes with a parent always looking at their phone, though he was the one who took the time to take us to the beach, not my mother. I remember when I was researching space, sitting in the Cocoa Public Library, scrolling through microfilm. I looked for any mention of the car accident. 1966 was the first year for the local paper. Today, a name that used to seem like a joke in an era of papers with names like Orlando Sentinel and the Miami Herald. But today became Florida Today and then USA Today, complete with the once ridiculous exclamation point 
instead of stop being the punchline for a joke. But I couldn't find anything about the car crash. Now I try again. Nearly all the back issues of today are online now, but only starting with 1968, not 1966. I used my computer to call my sister back in the U.S. She's been in bad health, and her memory comes and goes. This time, she tells me she doesn't remember the car crash. I tell her what she told me about our father's impatience with the traffic. Hmm, that sounds like him, she says. I do know when, later that year, I fell 20 feet from a tree in the neighbor's backyard onto a concrete patio, crushing four vertebrae in my back, collapsing along, and breaking my jaw and all the fingers on my left hand. It felt like that car crash had sounded. And years later, when a car full of teenagers ran a red light a few blocks from my home in Wisconsin and smashed into my Mazda station wagon, sending me spinning across three lanes of traffic and bashing my head against the window, I felt that impact of car on car and thought, so this is what it feels like. I saw the crash. I felt that crash and my body remembered it. But did I really see the surfboard cut a woman's head off? Because in my memory, it is a woman with long blonde hair tied in a scarf against the wind. I was looking at her before the accident and I remember thinking that I wanted to look like that when I grew up. So why can't I see in my memory what happened to her head? I'm making myself crazy with all this. I wonder if it might be possible to do an equation that would tell me what the speed the station wagon had to be going, how heavy the surfboard had to be to cut through a woman's neck. When I think of it that way, it seems absurd. First, because I'm hopeless at math. Second, sitting here right now at my computer in Montevideo, my neck seems way too sturdy for any surfboard to cut through. But then again, I am a perfectly healthy woman spending her 60th day shut in her apartment because there is an invisible virus outside that could cut off my ability to breathe. So my doubt may just be the inability of all humans to really believe in death, to recognize how fragile our bodies are. This is what I do know, what I remember with perfect clarity. When the station wagon hit the convertible, a camera came flying out of the convertible and landed on the sandy strip next to the car. It was a Kodak Instamatic, the kind that took a rotating flash cube. Our family owned one just like it. The camera arced through the air, bounced several times before it stopped. I remember a teenage boy who'd been standing in the parking lot, ran forward, picked up the camera, and calmly walked off with it. I have never been able to get that out of my mind. Not just that he so calmly stole a dead woman's camera, but there was almost certainly film in it. She had been at the beach, and I imagined the whole 24-shot roll of ocean waves, long sandy stretches of beach, maybe friends sunbathing, waving at her. If she was a tourist, maybe shots of a visit to the Kennedy Space Center. Or, if she was like my family, which was careful about using up film, maybe there was an entire year of her life on that single roll. Birthday cake with lit candles, Christmas tree, crying baby, new puppy. What, I wanted to know, had happened to the film? Had the thief just popped the roll out of the camera and tossed it? Maybe. It was proof the camera was stolen. But somehow... I have always been sure he did not. I have always imagined that he got the photos developed, tucked them in a drawer somewhere, under his underwear or socks. And years went by, 
The colors would have shifted, faded, as they did then. Did you take them out to look at sometimes? Those color squares from another life. Maybe at some point, all the old photos, the woman's and his as well, had been given away. I spent hours sorting through those boxes of discarded family photos in antique malls at Goodwill stores with my husband, who, before he retired, taught the history of photography. Wedding receptions and Thanksgiving dinners with whole tables full of now anonymous family, just given away. Those photos are out there somewhere. I am sure of it. I have always been sure of it. Why? Because they are all that is left of that woman in the convertible. Those photos exist in the place of the missing head and the memories that were in that head. If they still exist, she still exists. If she still exists, even in a handful of photos, then I will still exist in old photos, in the books I wrote, after I die, maybe of coronavirus, maybe crossing that dangerous intersection in front of my apartment. I wish I had one of those photos from her camera, even just one. All I have is this, a photo I found on the Facebook group growing up in Brevard County of the Burger King on Highway 520 and South Plumosa Street in Merritt Island, Florida. And a photo makes it all seem real, doesn't it? That was Jessie Lee Kerchival reading her essay, Crash. At the end of the piece, she includes a photograph of the Burger King in Merritt Island, Florida, that is referenced in the piece. That photograph, as well as the full text of Crash, can be found on the New England Review website at nereview.com. A couple weeks back, I was able to sit down with Jessie Lee over Zoom to discuss this piece as well as her time in quarantine and what is often the untrustworthiness of memory. Here is that conversation now. Hi, Jesse Lee. Thank you so much for joining me today for this interview. And where are you in the world right now? I know that you said that you were in the central time zone, but are you home? I'm in my house in Madison, Wisconsin. Carolyn Keebler, uh, NER's editor-in-chief, she mentioned that you might be in Uruguay. Crash also mentions that you have lived there in the past. And it's about 2010. Um, I've been spending a lot of time in Uruguay, half the year if I can get there or a semester if not a lot of trips down, sometimes as many as something crazy as five times a year, because I fell in love with Uruguayan poetry and I've been translating Uruguayan poetry, especially Uruguayan women poetry. It's a tiny country, 3.3 million people, and has this amazing tradition of women poets going back, you know, 150 years. I was there, as it's referred to in Crash, when, you know, the pandemic hit. I was supposed to be there for spring semester working on some translation projects, spring semester 2020. And then just got locked down and uh, finally took advantage of getting out of uh, Uruguay and back to the United States a year ago. And Uruguay, the borders are still sealed. So I would have loved to have been down there this last winter because the thing about Uruguay is it's summer there when it's winter in Wisconsin. But um, that just wasn't possible. So I, I, I miss my Uruguayan friends. I worry about my Uruguayan friends, but I can't go down there right now. Mm-hmm. You are, of course, a writer across modes and mediums. You write nonfiction like Crash, but you also write 
poems and novels and short fiction. And like you just said, you translate works from Spanish. So how does writing nonfiction like Crash differ from practicing other forms of writing? Do you know, I actually, the essays are a pandemic thing for me. I can't say I've never written nonfiction because I have a, um, probably my best-selling book is a, a memoir about growing up during the moon race in Florida called Space. And I refer to that in, in Crash. And so I'd always been actually intimidated by essays. And it's just something I started writing during the pandemic, maybe to be able to write in a form that responded immediately to the moment, to what was going on. Um, you know, like the very first one I wrote, um, which is called The New Troy, is just about what it's like to be locked down in order way when the pandemic hit. And I've just been writing essays like crazy. Um, and before, so, but I, I'm restless. I started as a fiction writer. And then I, uh, my first book is a book of stories, uh, the dog eater, and then a novel, the museum of happiness, and then poetry, and then a memoir, then the translation. So I'm, I am just someone who, I don't know, gets bored easily. So I, I, I like to do different things, but the, the essay is actually the most recent. I mean, I, if you look back at my memoir, maybe you say, oh, this chapter is like an essay, but I, I never really thought of it that way as having kind of like a, you know, that essay is voice where someone's speaking to you and, um, and sort of, speaking to philosophically, a rumination, you know, uh, uh, an essay at a, at a subject. Mm -hmm. And do you find yourself like still writing poems throughout this time or? You know, I, I don't keep all, all those various balls in the air at the same time. I'm usually working in a couple of things. I always write some poems. For one thing, I've been in a long running women's poetry group that meets every two weeks over Zoom during the pandemic. And the rule is you got to show up with a poem. So I don't usually violate the rule. But I would say the poems have been a bit on the back burner. Um, I've been doing translation because I've got a bunch of ongoing projects for that. And translation is, it's sort of like knitting. I mean, it's something that's always there. I don't know what, it, or watch repair or something. You know, you can be not being feeling all that creative, but if you have time to put in, then on translation, it's always rewarded. It is a creative act, but I mean, it just takes a lot of time. And so during the pandemic, I had a lot of time and therefore I could move forward with translation. I've actually become really interested in visual art. That's the other thing that I started doing during the pandemic, because when I was locked down in uh, Waterway, you know, just in a rented apartment, I didn't have much to do and I wanted not to be on the computer all the time. So I had a, um, I bought at the supermarket, I was able to buy a, a pack of colored pencils. And so I just started drawing, which I'd never done before, not even as a kid. And now it's kind of gone down another rabbit hole because I'm publishing um, some graphic narratives. I uh, had one in Waxwing. Um, and, um, and illustrated essays and, you know, just generally spending a lot of the day drawing. So drawing and art and essays have been my, my pandemic go-to mm -hmm. and fiction. I haven't touched at all. I don't know something, something, I don't think I've even read any fiction, something about the pandemic, just maybe other people were escaping into fiction, but to me, it, it sort of made me want to do things that could respond to the immediate. Right. Yeah. I understand that nonfiction is obviously very like grounded in reality and then maybe the escapism there's some fraction of maybe guilt in that we feel like we have to be grappling with the moment perhaps yeah it, it didn't always that way for me years ago i was at yado the artist colony and i was writing my first novel which was set in france in 1929 and a big tree fell down outside the mansion there and like all the poets, every single poet who was there, I think, wrote a poem about this giant historical tree going down in the storm. You know, I'm writing a novel set in Paris in 1929. And so I was like, no way can I respond to that tree. So I, I think, you know, if you think of the tree as being the, this last year, I, I, I use somehow the drawing and the, and the essays did that. And to some extent poems, but for some reason, 
I don't know. That's, that's not where I was finding my voice. Maybe I'll look back at the poems I wrote this year and think, oh, they were good. But right now I, I find them sort of all little poem things that, that have not been the big work for me. I see. Um, yeah. So this piece is, of course, a nonfiction piece, but I don't know if you've seen it. it's labeled a reckoning in this volumes table of contents. Um, mm -hmm. I was wondering, this piece does seem to be doing a lot of reckoning. And I would argue maybe that it is even one of its primary purposes. So would you agree with it being called like a reckoning or how would you say this piece is performing or embodying that? Yes. I mean, it's, it, it, I think it falls into a long category of essays and memoir pieces where you don't know if something that you remember is true and to reckon up what something um, has meant in your life. And it's, you know, it's about trying to find out truth. And, you know, there's a, a long theme in, in personal essay and in memoir of people writing about things where they don't know. They can't remember, their parents lied to them, they don't know the history of something and how hard it is to really get there. And this actually covers territory that's covered in my memoirs. It's, you know, I'm, I'm it's the same age. My memoir covers from when I'm 10 and I moved to Florida to when I'm 17. But it's different because I left this out <laughs> because I, I wasn't sure that I remembered it. I wasn't sure that um, I could find out if it was true. And if it, I did, couldn't do that, you know, how could I put it in a book? Mm -hmm. Right. So the piece sort of begins with this event or this recollection of event that is pretty shocking and traumatic, but it doesn't primarily tell like the story of the event, but rather the story of its recollection. As you just said, um, it's more about meditating on like the nature of being able to recall a memory or not being able to recall a memory. So would you say that the structuring of this piece sort of naturally shaped itself to and followed like the tenuous structure of this memory? Or would you say that it was more of like a deliberate effort to structure this with all the thoughts that sort of emanated from the memory? I think the form came from the subject matter because it's really an argument with myself. Mm hmm and um, and so there's no other way to write about something I don't think that that you're not sure of, um, right. and so the and the and the voice comes from that too. And it's really maybe the only essay that I've written that really quite has that voice so far. I mean, I think I tend to go for a little bit more authoritative voice when I'm talking about something in an essay. Like, okay, you know, here I am locked down in Montevideo. It's like this right before the we knew about uh, COVID. Is another essay I wrote. I was in China. You know, it's it. That's not like, oh, was I in China? Oh, am I in Montevideo? But this this is a you know a meditation on you know the nature of memory and the nature of, of events effect on you, on me, um, when you really haven't stopped and thought about it or have mm -hmm. thought about it only occasionally. Because it it, it is a draw. You know, whenever I've said that, I've talked about that event before over the years. I would say that this thing happened, and then people would just look at me, and I think, well, okay. Yes, I did see someone's head get cut off, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. But would you say that that doubt is more recent in your life or have you always kind of doubted this memory? I doubted this memory enough not to put it in my memoir, but there were things in my memoir when I was researching it that I found out that I was wrong about, things mm -hmm. I was sure of, that I found, you know, actual newspaper articles that said that I had remembered that wrong because, you know, I was a kid at the time and I probably heard somebody talking about something and understood it incorrectly. Um, there, there are things that you can never know. Like, you know, if you ever write about family, you know, I have one version of something after my memoir was published, my sister said to me, Oh, I know why you left this thing out. And she told me something I'd never heard before. <laughs> so you know, she's just two years older. There was something I didn't know. 
so, um, you know, there's always this sort of wrestling with memory, but the, the idea of this, that it's so dramatic and that I have both very clear and very unclear memories of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I remember uh, talking about that even in like psychology class. We talked about like people's recollections of 9-11 and that being like obviously an event that you would everyone sort of talks about remembering like where they were when that occurred but um come to find out even people's memories like 10 years down the line um so much conviction about like the place and and the environment when it happened and how they're remembering that but come to find those details are inaccurate like over time or become inaccurate over time yeah i find that's really true with things that i haven't experienced personally and this this is interesting to me because I was really, you know, it's really something that happens when you see you're viscerally there. Like when the plane, when I was locked down in order where they shut the airport, they shut the borders and I couldn't get out. I thought, well, the other time it was like this was after 9-11 because the planes were grounded for so long. And then I look back, it, it's really only a few days. I mean, I have to Google it again. But in my memory, there had been no flights for like weeks. You know, right. somehow I, I had thought it was much, much longer. Uh, because I guess it was such a big thing. People talking about being stuck someplace and, you know, no rental cars. And I had some friends who rented a U-Haul to drive home from a convention, you know, that kind of story. It just, in my mind, that had grown to be a longer period of time. Exactly. Yeah. And as we keep returning to those memories, because we're still trying to grapple with them, um, every time you access a memory, it changes. But every time you write something, so that's something I found when I wrote my memoir, I had told some of those stories some of the funny ones about growing up with rockets going off, you know, outside your house. But a lot of the memories are just inchoate. They're just, you know, you just think about them and they're sort of colors and smells and sensations. And then when I read about them, that's what I remember. I mean, actually everything that you didn't put down goes away and the memory becomes the thing you wrote. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting to me too. Um, and, <laughs> you know, that, that's just an example of how unreliable it is. It's the words replace the larger memory. Right. Yeah. And as you say that, um, writing things down, taking on like the form of the memory, I'm reminded of in your piece, you talk about photography as well and photographs becoming a sort of material memory. So obviously, yeah, this piece grapples with the troubling sort of subjectivity of memory and how it dodges attempts at access and makes us doubt, but it incorporates technology and its impact on memory. And how would you say that photography relates to memory in this piece? And how did you decide to invoke it as? Well, I think if people see a a photograph of something, they believe it's real. And, um, and of course, photographs can be doctored, but um, that, that if you could find an article in the newspaper, if you could find a picture of the wreck, if you could find, um, and for me, I think my generation photographs maybe even more real that way because I there's an assignment that you know many a freshman English teacher or creative writing teacher is given where you you get people to bring a photograph you know into class that means something to them and then you know there's whatever they're supposed to be writing depends on what kind of class it a poem a story of an essay and the last time I tried it you know, as a visitor in someone's class it was a freshman English class the students just had a totally different they're supposed to bring a photograph in their life attitude towards photographs. They would say things like, well, my mother takes a million pictures with her iPhone. I don't know what pictures there are of me as a kid. Whereas, you know, I have a small box of photos of me as a kid. And I know in many places, the only, I don't know if I have a memory of me standing beside a pool wearing a certain bathing suit, or I just know that photograph or the story that went with the photograph. And so they're these sort of frozen iconic moments. And the sheer amount of photographs we take now, I think, 
has maybe making photos more like memories and it's forgettable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. Yeah. And I found that very fascinating about your piece as well. And I was also wondering about your decision to include the photo at the end. Um, You've already sort of touched on how that can take on the form of, of a memory, but I was wondering more about that decision. Yeah. Well, I just looked so, and then the, the piece talks about that too, looking to say that if you could find some documentary evidence of the actual thing that happened, and the only thing that I really found was a photograph of the Burger King about mm-hmm. the same time that it happened. So that at some point, you know, you think, well, am I misremembering where the Burger King was when this accident took place in front of, you know, I, I, I was a kid. I think it was in this place. I think that's where it was. But what if I look it up and there's no Burger King there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, then you would really think, oh, I couldn't have remembered this. It's like every little bit of, of, of fact. Years ago, I went back to Fontainebleau, France, which is where I was born. Um, but I'm, I was grown up and I'd never been there back there since. And we were driving around. My husband and I were driving around and I saw where I'd lived. And I only knew that because there's a photograph of my mother standing over my sister and I at this bench in front of this apartment building. And it's, it was just so, so real. I mean, another way, otherwise I would have, have no way of knowing really any connection to Fontevla. My father was working for NATO, you know, we were just Americans in, in Fontevla. There, there it was, there was the building, there was the bench, the bench was still there. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, it, I don't know, it, it, it not just made the fact that I lived there, I don't think my parents were lying to me about us living there, but like every family story about it just suddenly seemed so much more real. Right. Yeah, right. I moved to Idaho when I was four. So and imagine if I went back to my childhood home now, I mean, between like when I was born in Fort, that home now, um, I agree with you. Like, to me, that seems sort of a very far away sort of illusion. But if if I were to go back there now, I mean, I have these very fleeting kind of ephemeral memories of it, but I feel like they would take on such more like material form. I do feel like we attach memory to objects in the world or objects in the world evoke that memory. Yeah. yeah. Again, um, something else I was wondering with writing nonfiction in particular, do you feel that the subjectivity or inaccuracy of memory over time is a source of anxiety about telling the truth or being truthful with yourself and with your audience? Or do you feel that that uncertainty or subjectivity is something that you can use or I don't want to say play with necessarily, but like work with? Well, this essay was really doing that. But mm-hmm. um, I think I think it's always there. And and it's one of the things that's to me that's interesting about a personal essay. I mean, it, if I'm going to write that, I don't know, the history of the vacuum cleaner, it's a non-personal essay. <laughs> you don't really want me making up stuff. <laughs> I might be wrong, but then, you know, if I was going to be published in New Yorker, the fact checkers would get me. But other things, the, the, the subjectivity is really interesting. I, I've now lived long enough that I look back at something that I wrote, and I think it's both true that I thought something at a certain time, and I also think I was wrong. I mean, I'm, you know, as I've, as I've gotten older, my, my mother-in-law told a story once. When she, was, she was in New York during the Second World War. And her, her husband was an FBI agent undercover or something. I can't really remember the whole story. But he had wanted to rent a lighthouse for them to live in. Somehow, in this New York, there's a lighthouse you could rent to stay in. I don't know where. And she said over the years... That she first she was furious with him because she had two little children. How could you live in a lighthouse with all these stairs? 
And so they lived in a basement apartment or something instead. And then over the years, she kept thinking about it and she got sorrier and sorrier she hadn't lived in the lighthouse. So it's that the practical thing, like, you know, I would have a one-year-old tumbling down a hundred <laughs> stairs to the bottom, yeah. uh, went away and she just kept thinking we could have lived in a lighthouse. Right. Um, and so that's a way in which, you know, the same fact, it's the same lighthouse, wherever the heck the lighthouse was, but her response to it at first was just anger and irritation mm-hmm. and practicality of it. And then more and more, it began to sort of symbolize something that she'd missed some, you know, some amazing experience. Right. Began to sort of romanticize it in a way. Yeah. We lived in a basement apartment. We could have lived in a lighthouse. Lighthouse. Yeah. And that story, which I just told you, is probably so full of errors. So I'll ask my husband, he'd say, no, the lighthouse wasn't in New York, you know, but just metaphorically, this this works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I do definitely see both the anxiety and sort of embracing of of the inaccuracy of memory in this piece. Um, Another question. Do you worry about writing about people that you know. This was something my co-intern and I were sort of looking at this piece and we felt like in our own writing that that's something that we're very conscious of, like writing about our family members or our friends and representing them in in ways that we would hope they would like, but also that impacts on our writing and our ability to sort of tell the truth. So is that something that you... Yes, I think there there are always areas we don't write about certain things, certain people. I think this one, you know, my father's been dead a long time. He gets to come off as a little bit absent-minded, <laughs> but, you know, um, I, this one was okay. You know, um, I'm I, there, there's worse thing that there's worse stuff about my family or m- more emotionally revealing problematic stuff in the memoir, which I wrote that mm-hmm. came out in 1998. So, um, but there, there are things that I think everyone has something in some part of their life that's like a little ring of penicillin around that, you know, you know, kind of kind of write about that. And sometimes it becomes a real problem. You know, I've gone through periods and even have things now that I think I, I really want to write about, or I've even written things that I that I don't publish. I mean, it's it's easy for me to be hard-hearted with my students and say, no, you have to be brave as a writer. It's your story, you know. But, you know, it's also your life. Um, I don't think... I think you have to err on the side of, I, I would urge people to, to go for telling their story and being brave and knowing it's their point of view and someone else can write their own story. But, you know, there are always exceptions to that. There are always exceptions to that. Mm-hmm. Actually, one thing about memories, I'm sitting here and I did not reread the piece right before we talked. And I was going to say, okay, there's probably something in that essay that I've already forgotten I put in there. I was thinking, you're sitting here thinking, is the part where I imagine, imagine my father holding a cell phone in his hand? Yes, still that, in the is, piece? Okay. that is still in the piece. Yeah. So that, that that I put in and that was kind of silly and I took it out. But it is strange. That's also this thing, weird thing about memory. Like with my children, I have grown children now. But one of the things that happened after they were born is that I would remember some part of my life that's way before they're being being there, you know, you know, I'm in Paris and I would imagine both the kids being there. I mean, it was just like my life was so full of them that I couldn't imagine I had been anywhere without them. Like they, 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 they were sort of and I think, wait a minute, they weren't even born yet. And so the cell phone is just some weird thing. The cell phone is so ubiquitous now. We walk around with it all right. in our hands all the time. And I suddenly thought, well, of course, my father would have been distracted by the cell right. phone. Of course, yeah. Everyone can one. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with me today and answering all my questions. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I would like to thank Jessie Lee Kirchival again for taking the time to read and discuss her piece. Published in NER, Volume 42, Number 2, Crash. 
This episode of the NER Out Loud podcast was edited and produced by me, Becca Amon, an English and philosophy major at Middlebury College in the class of 2022 and a 2021 summer intern at the New England Review. I would like to thank my co-intern, Gardena Carney, with whom I collaborated to prepare for the production of this episode and who provided me support at every step. The NER Out Loud podcast is produced by New England Review in association with Middlebury College. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth. All other music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. You can read or hear more at nereview.com, as well as purchase print or digital editions of recent volumes. If you want to stay updated, you should subscribe to our podcast, sign up for our email list, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter Thank you for listening to this episode of NER Out Loud.